Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. My guest today is someone who's been on the show before, and that is Chris Hutton, Deputy Director at the Free Market Foundation. Chris, welcome. Uh, good morning, Sarah, and good morning to the listeners. Happy New Year to all of you. Thank you, and, and to you. Um, um, as, I, as I said at the start, uh, happy would be good. Um, <laughs> don't rely on it. Um, Chris, before we get into looking at what was the basis of me wanting to talk to you, which was an article you wrote to, towards the end of the year in City Press. Uh, was it was sorry, City Press, yes. I just want to give you, I just want to go through a little bit of our president's New Year's message. And it was very typical. It dealt a lot with how people have suffered and dealing with the uh, pandemic and due to the devastating effects of the COVID pandemic, many breadwinners had lost their jobs, businesses had closed, and millions of families were struggling to put food on the table. Um, he was thankful for the strength of our democracy, and in the midst of the unrest, South, South Africans came together. So it was really a, a lot of bromides. But the only thing he indicated that the government was going to do, and it, again, I would call these bromides as well, was that... We will dedicate our energies to create work and fight hunger. We will build on the important progress that has been made in ending state capture and fighting corruption. We will continue to prevent corruption and successfully prosecute those responsible for malfeasance. We must work together to deal decisively with rising levels of crime and build a better South Africa based on democratic values, social justice and human rights. Um, Chris, fundamentally in my in in my view, he said pretty much nothing. And he made quite a point of, of the fact that the pandemic had had effect, an economic effect, a tragic economic effect on people's lives. What he didn't do was make any reference to the fact that the pandemic is really underlined by the economic devastation that has been wrought by the governing party. And your, your article in the City Press said, South Africa's political economic decline is accelerating. You, what, when you say we're going downhill essentially at, at a rapid rate, uh, what, what, what are you, what are you looking to? Not to be uh, facetious so early in the new year, but I'm sure that this time the government's promises will actually be delivered upon and we will see uh, great job creation uh, as opposed to the promises that have been made before and we haven't seen those jobs being created. I mean, at the moment we have a 74% youth unemployment rate and an, uh, probably over 48% unemployment rate based on the expanded definition. So it is a... A tragedy of epic proportions, but just in terms of the country as a whole, and this is something that I would also advise people to look at, especially the work of the Institute of Race Relations and the Center for Risk Analysis, which is trying to look at trends over the long term. So not just saying, you know, look at the unemployment numbers in this month, look at unemployment numbers over five or ten years, look at um, so social strife and unrest, look at protest action, um, look at where people are moving to uh, look at the number of, of taxpayers or people out of the total population who are paying, trying to pay their taxes. All those sorts of things, to me, um, point towards South Africa, heading towards, I would say, an even more difficult 
decade probably than what has come before. It, uh, we can look at the next general elections and see if a more center-right coalition will come about. Maybe that'll portend to a better sort of future for the country. But I think for the time being, government is simply constrained by its ideological blinkers. And I don't want people to be surprised, even by something, for example, like the tragic um, fire at Parliament mm. uh, the weekend. These things don't happen in isolation. Um, if you look at, for example, the comments by uh, the National Assembly Speaker, she said that she will not take responsibility for the fire that gutted Parliament. Now, I'm sure no one is really going to take responsibility mm. because this government likes to take what they call collective responsibility. That's part of their collectivist sort of ideology. So we, we should always look at the language that they use and the ideology that they hold that will inform the policies that they implement. And in that way, I don't think we will see positive radical change in South Africa, at least in the short term. Let's, can I just look at some specifics you raise? And uh, one of them is supply chain constraints and the extraordinary situation we have of our ports virtually not working um, and being very expensive. So they're down the, at the bottom of the list of, of world uh, ports that are, are in any way attractive to use uh, for, shifts, for shipping to use. And, of course, the rail infrastructure, which is just literally being torn out of the ground as we speak. I know that with rail, uh, a dispute over security contracts started the whole disappearance of, of security from the, from late 2019 onwards. And so it's been – the rail infrastructure has been up for grabs, literally. Right, and that's partly why we see many of our roads um, sort of falling apart because trucks – more and more trucks have to use roads because that same freight can't be um, transported across the country's rail networks, for example. Part of that, of course, boils down to the rail police not existing anymore. I'm not saying that they would guarantee – um, these things wouldn't happen, but at least it would be another sort of disincentive mm. for criminals. And, of course, just basic accountability. When people see, for example, the former president not being held accountable for what he did, then one shouldn't be surprised that you know, people sort of in desperation try and do things to give themselves a better life. It's not justified, but they're going to try things. And if they don't get caught... It's sort of a, an extra incentive for them. Regarding the country's ports, not to give government too much credit, but last year, um, Minister of Public Enterprises, Pravin Gordon, talked a lot about how, how keen they are to get private sector investment and skills development in the country's ports. Now it remains to be seen whether that will actually be allowed to operate or whether a sort of independent ports authority, as has been mooted, an independent transnet ports authority will be allowed to operate and actually implement the necessary steps, which would probably step on a lot of political and business interest toes, but which, which would be necessary to actually get the ports going properly again. When our ports don't function, it, it, it sort of, it acts as another non-tariff trade barrier, which means it discourages the flow of goods into our ports. It makes it more expensive when your goods sit there at the port, either on the ship because there aren't enough um, sort of places for the ships to come in or the, the um, documents process takes too long or there's other corruption-related issues. That all discourages the flow of goods into the country, which means our neighboring countries could benefit if they mm -hmm. step up their port operations. But secondly, of course, it has a negative effect on South African consumers who possibly could get cheaper goods from overseas, but now because of inefficiencies, they have to get things uh, locally, which might unfortunately in some cases, not always, 
but in some cases be more expensive. So the whole trade issue is a big, a big, it's a big opportunity for the country, but there's also lots of government related inefficiencies. And this is sort of in the vein of the Africa continental free trade area, which hopes to improve the flow of goods and services across the continent. But when one of the biggest economies, such as South Africa on the continent is inefficient, you wonder whether the benefits of that free trade agreement will actually be felt by the sort of man on the street. Mm. Well, uh, talking about you talk about sort of government getting out of the way, which it, it struggles to to do. You also point out that localization isn't the answer. Um, what is localization, and why does it potentially act as a as, as another barrier to trade? So localization, in effect, and I'll paraphrase here in my own understanding as well is an attempt by government to quote-unquote re-industrialize South Africa and to re, re-energize our manufacturing base. As I'm sure everyone who is listening is well aware, South Africa's economic activity for pretty much the last century was based on mining and manufacturing and these sorts of big factories and um, that sort of industrial scale activity. And one would hope that you can sort of bring that back in some ways, that you can re-energize things and create those those long-term jobs in some ways, but I would argue that localization is achieved in two ways. Um, it can either be done through subsidies for local businesses and companies, which, of course, the government provides, or secondly, you impose higher tariffs and duties on imported, book, on imported goods because you want, in, in effect, locally produced goods to, to win out. You want people to buy local, buy proudly South African, that kind of thing. Now, to me, both of those methods in the short term might create jobs and you might sort of create these champions in different sectors, as it were. Um, I think many businesses who are part of NEDLAC and part of the bigger sort of business lobbies will be happy because they might be assigned as champions and they'll receive subsidies and protections and their bottom lines will look better for their shareholders and they'll look like they're making more profits. So in the short term, it might work, but over the long term, I think it undermines the country's competitiveness because it sort of creates this bubble effect that we're more that we're more competitive and productive than we actually are, and it has a negative effect on lower and middle income consumers because again they're forced to buy more expensive locally produced goods where they could be buying cheaper imported goods and then using the extra money as savings maybe on their kids' education. Uh, the fuel price, of course, keeps on going up. It will go down tomorrow, but it'll probably go up again at some point because government hasn't yet eliminated all of the many taxes mm. that it collects as part of the fuel price. So that has an effect on, on local production. And then you have the electricity issue. So it's all well and good talking about reindustrialization, but you can't do that without cheap and consistent electricity supply. And for as long as we have a government-enforced monopoly in electricity, i.e. ESCOM, you probably won't see the kind of reliable energy that we really need to get proper economic growth going. It's sort of that vicious trap, I suppose. So we want more economic activity and growth. And when we get that, ESCOM can't handle it. So then the, the sort of grid gets close to collapse again and then economic activity declines. So on the one hand, government likes to obviously talk a big game about reindustrialization, but if they don't, if they aren't serious about speeding up the sort of spinning off of the various ESCOM entities and creating competition in electricity supply and distribution, I think localization, like many other things, will just be the sort of pie-in-the-sky, nice buzzword, pipe dream that won't have an actual positive impact for, for the man on the street. 
I read a comment um, recently by a businessman who complained that one of the problems with localization, particularly if you have to source um, goods or materials locally, is that you almost always end up having to go through a middleman, which then obviously creates the possibility for corruption and increases the price of the of of the of the basic goods needed for the manufacturing to occur. And given the fact that we are a, a country that is virtually been destroyed by incompetence and corruption, um, I, I think that's probably more likely than not. Or, or am I or are being cynical? <laughs> well, we, we're only on the 4th of January, so I wouldn't say you're being <laughs> cynical. Maybe you're just being uh, realistic. I mean, what... But, I mean, objectively, well, if one were to sit there, and of course we all want to believe that the country is going to do better and that some of these plans might work, but what objective reasons do we have to think something like localization wouldn't fall prey to corruption issues? I mean, just in December, sort of mid-December to late December last year, uh, there was an interesting uh, piece published on Business Day. I can't remember the exact name, but I would recommend people go and read it, just about the chair of Transnets, of the Transnet board, I believe, he mentioned how already some localization requirements are increasing their own operation costs. So one sort of arm of government, one policy of government is affecting the operations of another part of government. And then people reacted and then they put out another statement. I think the spokesperson sort of published a letter in Business Day just about how, no, they're committed to localization, they support it, et cetera, et cetera. But you already see there some issues around procurement and input costs and how they can source what they need for some of their own operations. So it's already starting. And I don't think one, one would be naive, I think, to think, oh, all of a sudden things are going to change. It's almost like thinking we just need to get the right sort of person in charge in, in the presidency or we just need to get the right sort of NEC in place. It, it all boils down to ideas and ideology. And for as long as that stuff doesn't really change, then don't be surprised when things like corruption continue to increase the costs both of doing business and of investing in the country. Mm. Well, I, th I think what people underestimate um, is that the ideology is profound. It's a, it's a socialist ideology heading to communism. It is un almost unshakable. It doesn't matter what goes wrong and what happens. And, of course, by virtue of it being sort of control, absolute control by the state, which strikes me as rather uh, patronizing, but absolute control of the state, it, 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 it's been proven in every communist country that has existed on earth. The, the, it, it's, it's, a, it's a definite destination for corruption, for incompetence, and it's possibly the incompetence and the inability of the people managing Things like the SOEs that are, is the, is almost worse than the corruption itself. Because how do you, you know, to, to, to not properly securitize your, your, your railway infrastructure and to allow your ports to become degraded, um, you know, you can be perfectly uncorrupt, if I can put it that way, and, and, and destroy everything you've got because you, your reliance on cargo deployment and BEE makes almost guarantees that you are unlikely to put the right people in the in in, in the right places. What's your view on the issue of cargo deployment and linked to 
BE as a as an overlay? Uh, psychologically, I mean, it, it it a lot boils down to or some uh, it's an, almost a form of paternalism, I would argue, and a, a form of presuming that one can decide for others how they should live, how they should interact, um, who they may employ or may not, who they may work for and who they may not, that the only way that they can function is by the state sort of dictating the minutiae to them and their lives. I mean, it's a very sort of disempowering view, I think, of humans and human agency and human dignity. It's quite sad when one thinks about it, of all the sort of fights and sacrifices that were done throughout the country's history to attain economic freedom and political freedom. I mean, at least in some ways we still have very good political freedom, but economic freedom continues to decline and people are, aren't allowed to sort of try and have a go and create wealth for themselves and their families and their businesses. Luckily, the informal sector seems to be quite robust and strong. So even if the formal sector is stifled by government bureaucracy and red tape, the informal sector seems like people are still trying very hard to still do sort of normal everyday um, business activity. But no, I think cadre deployment and BE are two prime examples of that sort of collectivist state-based ideology worldview that has pushed South Africa to the point where it is now. Um, it's one thing for a political party, for example, to think that it should deploy its members, quote-unquote, but it's another thing when you examine the very foundations of the National Democratic Revolution where it's all about the state and the, part, the, the party becoming the state and the government and the party sort of controlling national assets, quote-unquote, so things like airlines, factories, uh, power, again, with ESCOM, all this sort of stuff. It's a, it's a whole different thing when it, when the state becomes so entwined with every part of life and the economy that whatever they decide, it's going to have an impact on on the economy. So, yeah, I, I don't think we should be surprised at any of the consequences of these policies and these ideas and – I wonder what it's going to take to sort of break break these kinds of things. I did see this morning an interesting article in the Guardian of all places. I don't know if one if they're going to be be accused of being quote unquote right wing or whatever people throw around nowadays. But this article deals with South Africa and how more and more people and communities are sort of trying to look after themselves and solve problems together because there's simply been a complete breakdown of faith. In the state. So when even international publications like The Guardian start pointing out these things, then you have to think things really are going in that direction. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Chris, the last issue I want to raise with you is the one that probably is high on the list of no-nos for local and foreign investors. Uh, and when particularly here is it being talked about in relation to foreign investors, and that's the uncertainty regarding property rights. Now, we saw that the attempt to change the Section 25 of the Constitution to provide for nil compensation or zero compensation in the, uh, in the event of uh, expropriation didn't go through. But as I understand it, that's not the end of the, the situation. Right, and I'm speaking under correction here, but the, so that was around the 18th Constitution Amendment Bill, yeah. which didn't garner enough uh, votes to pass. So it's not, it's not as, 
It's not like uh, people, the majority voted against it. It just didn't get enough to no. pass. <laughs> um, but we still have the expropriation bill, uh, which is on the table. And I think, I'm sure, I mean, Justice, Minister of Justice uh, Molala, as I think in December, he he made comments that indicated government will still is still committed to land reform in their understanding and some form of expropriation. So they're going to explore other ways to sort of get get what they what they want, quote unquote. I do think, and this is me sort of trying to play a predictor regarding upcoming elections, but I wonder whether the EFF, for example, will try and use their clout to tell the ANC that the ANC needs to give them a more radical form of expropriation and then they'll vote with them and give them support in different ways before the next general elections. As we know, ANC support continues to decline. Uh, especially last year's local government elections, which is good news in and of itself, but you wonder how it might be used in sort of political machinations and sort of long-term chess, how the EFF might try and use it to secure their own sort of long-term future. And if if the two parties might, again, at some point combine or form some kind of, of coalition. So I don't think anyone should think expropriation is completely off the table. Uh, we should... Um, we should consider it a victory, those of us who are concerned about the country's long-term future, uh, economic growth, job creation, and sort of prosperity, because pro- property rights are, are simply essential for for all of that to, to occur. But we should remain vigilant and continue to support organizations like the IRR, uh, Helen Sussman, Afi Forum, uh, the Free Market Foundation, who continue to do work around protecting the country's property rights. It's a, It's a constant fight, and we shouldn't assume that it's simply gone away now. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the things we need to make a distinction between is the much punted idea that you need to constrain property rights in order to create successful land reform when the one is not contingent at all upon the other. No, indeed. And you, I mean, if you get rid of, of, of sort of certainty of property rights, I would argue that you can't attain any kind of meaningful form of land reform because there's no incentive for people to own a home or a business or create and build things over the long term. And it's not just about being worried about the current government possibly seizing your property if your property rights aren't secure. It's about any future government. So always imagine that your worst political opponents get into power and get to wield the sort of levers of power of government and think what could they possibly do with that power to you and people in your, your community and that kind of thing. Always think about what they might use it for, you know. Mm-hmm. Chris, thank you very much for joining us. Um, I, I I didn't mention beginning because I wasn't quite sure what the uh, status was, but uh, uh, I believe you are joining us in said fight, um, coming over to the IRR for, uh, and believe me, you will, that you will be heavily involved in. And uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning and uh, clarifying some issues that we really have to be on the lookout for. It's not a matter just, we don't want to depress people. What we're looking at is just making people aware and alert to the conversation and upping the conversation and, and getting uh, resistance where appropriate to it. So thanks once again. Thank you very much, Sarah. I look forward to, to seeing you soon.